This is your Kick-Ass Life Podcast, episode number 175 with guest Samantha Skelly. This is the Your Kick-Ass Life Podcast with Andrea Owen, a no BS guide to self-help and badassery. Because ladies, let's face it, life's too short for it to not kick ass. And here's your host, the girl who serves it up straight with a side of crazy, Andrea Owen. Hey there, ass kickers. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. I am so glad you're here as always. So incredibly grateful that you join me every week for this podcast. And I have an amazing conversation slash interview to give you this week and we'll get to that in just a second. And I'm recording this on October 16th, which is the anniversary of my father's death. And it's a really gray, cloudy day. And I, you know, of course, try to make these intros upbeat and <laughs> positive and kick ass, but I'm not feeling all that awesome today. And there's a couple of things going on where I'm just, as my best friend Amy Smith and I, we message each other every once in a while and we're like, let me tell you all the things I'm mad about. <laughs> so, <laughs> as I sat here this morning and I'm like, shit, what am I going to say in the intro to make people feel good and get them ready for this episode, which is great, by the way, it's a super great episode. And the reality of it is that, you know, sometimes I get my feathers ruffled and I don't like to sugarcoat things and make things sound really awesome. You know, and again, there are so many things to be grateful for. I am, I, I have a regular gratitude practice that I did this morning. And so I think I don't know. I felt like I needed to say that. And not a but, it's an and. There's a lot of shit going on in the world right now, right? Between the natural disasters, the hurricanes in various places of the country, you know, the fires over on the West Coast and the whole debacle with some celebrities behaving badly, to put it mildly. And just two things I wanted to comment on. And obviously these are just my opinions, but this is my podcast. It's my show. I get to say what I want. And here's the thing. One is on a very small scale and one is on a very big scale. Let me start with a small scale. If any of you are parents listening to this, you probably have encountered this before. Your child is in a school performance and part of that performance is that they need to wear something specific. So this isn't a costume that you pay for that is you know, made by the drama club, volunteer parents or anything like that. It's as simple as, you know, this, there's, so my daughter's in, it's for my daughter, she's in second grade and there are five second grade classes. Yes, the school is growing by leaps and bounds. And each class is to wear a different color shirt for this performance, which is basically them up at the multipurpose room, it's tomorrow night, where they're going to sing songs. And my daughter, Sydney, has been assigned a solid blue shirt. We do not own a solid blue shirt. So the teacher sends out this email and she's saying, you know, you can, they have them for, you know, really inexpensive at Michael's and, and I just am like, you know what? No, <laughs> no, I just, I was so irritated. And like, okay, first of all, why? Okay. As, as we try to teach this generation to take care of mother earth, right? I mean, they just had literally a couple of weeks ago, they just had 
Well, no, that was Peace Day. There was something about Peace Day. But earlier in the year, they had Earth Day and the school did this big celebration of, you know, how to take care of the earth. But you're asking the parents to get in their cars and drive to a place, polluting the earth one, and purchase a T-shirt that they are going to wear once for an hour and then never wear it again and it's going to end up in the landfills which if anybody knows like our landfills are overflowing with textiles with like our clothing like goodwills and secondhand stores can't take hardly any of the donations that they're given especially the clothes because there's just so many so my phone i don't know if you guys can hear my phone vibrating that's text messages coming in from the other moms because i was like pissed off about this <laughs> i was telling them. They're probably in agreement with me, but I have not checked my text messages. Anyway, so I'm mad about that. I'm mad that. So then I'm like, no, screw that. No, my daughter has, she has a light blue shirt with a unicorn on it that I'll just turn inside out and she can wear like a tank top with it because it has like sequins and it would itch her. And that's going to have to be good enough. But I know my daughter and she's going to feel left out. You know, she's going to be like, mom, I don't want to be the only one who doesn't have this like royal blue solid color shirt or blue, royal blue-ish shirt. And so it puts me in a pickle. You know, do I comply and make my daughter happy and not feel left out? Or do I stand in what I believe in, which she is kind of like an innocent bystander? <laughs> like There's kind of, it's a no win situation. So I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to write, uh, of course, I'm going to write a letter. I'm going to write a letter to the principal and I'm going to copy the teacher. They're lovely people. Don't get me wrong. I love my daughter's, my, my kids' schools, and I love their teachers, love the principal, but I just think that it's something to be made aware of. So moral of the story, stand for what you believe in and ask for what you want. As my friend Amy says, with grace and kindness, might not turn out the way that I want it, but I want my voice to be heard. I think, you know, it's, I think it's important is what I'm trying to say. The other thing is this whole thing that's going, you might have seen it going around on Facebook with... Harvey Weinstein debacle. So I don't know if you've seen this or not. It depends on maybe the circles that you run in. A lot of my Facebook friends are progressive and and probably very liberal. It's a little bit of an echo chamber, not totally, but a little bit. And basically what's going around. And by the time this podcast episode comes out next week, maybe it will have sort of dwindled away, but it's typing the status me too on Facebook and it's to show that you've ever been sexually harassed or assaulted so we can see how many women this has happened to. I'm going to read to you what I wrote on Facebook because I think it's better that I do that than just start like going off about it. Here's what I said. This is if you follow my public post on Facebook, you probably saw it. I'm going to go out on a limb and say most women The majority of women you know have at least been harassed in some way or another in an inappropriate way. But the thing I'm the most furious and confused by is where are the men in all of this? Why aren't more men stepping forward and saying this isn't okay? The actors, the NASCAR guys, the pro athletes, the regular everyday Joes. I hear Ben Affleck say, we need to protect our wives and daughters, blah, blah, blah. No, we need you to speak out and encourage all your bros to speak out about how it's not okay to sexually assault and harass women. But I think I get it. If you protect us and tell all the men folk to protect us, we as women make you the hero and you 
keep the power and the patriarchy lives on while we women remain humiliated and ashamed. If we get to the root of the problem and by some miracle gain equal footing and put a stop to all of this, well, then the power is equal. And then I went into a story. God, this is just one of many stories that I have. When I was 19 or 20, I worked for a large sporting goods store as a cashier. Many of us were friends and would go out together after work. In the break room of the store, there was an employee of the week board and there was a Polaroid picture was taken and put up. So I was employee of the week and I came into work one day and I'll never forget it. I look into the, I go to the break room and there's other people in there and there's my picture on the wall, you know, with several other of my coworkers' pictures. And you know, the little white label on the Polaroid picture, someone had taken a Sharpie and written, I'm easy with an exclamation mark. And I know exactly who did it. It was Matt. He was a guy that I was friends with and he was really funny and we got along really well. And we had gone out after work to a party and he made advances at me and I said, no. And I don't remember being like a dick about it. Like I just was like, no, I'm not interested. And I know it was him. And I ripped my picture off the wall and I marched upstairs to the manager's office and he couldn't have been more than maybe 30 years old. He was a younger manager. And I'll never forget. I remember that office. I remember that his desk was on the opposite side of the room and I had to walk all the way across. I don't think anybody else was in there. And I slapped the Polaroid down on his desk in front of him and I pointed at it and I said, even if this were true, which it's not this is not okay. Fix it. And I don't know, like I look back on that and I'm like, damn girl, how was I 19 or 20 years old? And I had that courage. I think it might've just been that I was so young and just ignorant and kind of that whole, like, it just didn't care. And part of it, I do think is my personality. And part of it, I just was, I was just furious. I was furious that I was humiliated like that. And it was meant as a joke and that I was most likely going to be seen as someone who like can't take a joke, you know, all the things. And I was just done. I was done. And, and, you know, and it had been many, many years already of being harassed and assaulted. That's just one example. There was another two more instances of being sexually harassed at that that same job that I worked at for a couple of years by employees. One of them was a different manager and two different customers to me at that same job. One was this creepy dude who came in and, oh my God, it involved white spandex. I think he was like a full on predator and like, yeah, I don't even want to go into that story. It was so gross. And like at the time everyone was laughing about it, but it was the visceral thing that was happening to me. And I knew it wasn't okay. And I really knew it wasn't okay when a female and male manager escorted that man outside and they were a little bit older. And I was like, Oh, that was probably a, like, need, we need to call the police type of thing. At any rate, I just, Harvey Weinstein doesn't surprise me at all. The women that have not come forward, the other celebrities that didn't come forward, that doesn't surprise me at all. What really surprises me is the silence of men about this, because this is not our job to fix alone. This is a cultural problem. And the last time I checked, there were men and women as a part of this culture. And what I hear is the hashtag of not all men. And like we, we know, we know it's not all men, but that doesn't exempt you. It doesn't. 
I truly believe, you know, I see the question going around a lot on social media is how do we change this? How do we change it if if the men aren't listening, if the men don't believe us, first of all, because I think that's a huge part of it. If they don't believe us, if they don't do anything about it because of whatever fucking reason, I think it first starts with teaching our sons not to harass, not to assault, not to rape women and having actual conversations about it. Am I excited about having this conversation with my own son? Absolutely not. But I believe that it's necessary. I totally believe it's necessary. If you think about like the Bill Cosby's and the, the Harvey Weinstein's and the Brock Turner's, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, of the world, do you think that their parents ever sat them down and had this hard conversation about what that is and what that means and how that that is absolutely wrong? Don't think so. So it's up to us as parents, mothers and fathers, and it's going to be uncomfortable. But what's more uncomfortable is this. It is what is going on culturally. God, this makes me so mad. Rape culture is one of the things that I just cannot be with. I just can't. As a woman, as a mother, as a sister, as a human being, I just, I can't be with it. And that's what I'm mad at today. <laughs> oh, God. I wonder if I'm going to regret this, this whole intro. If I'm going to be like, oh, Andrea. <laughs> but you know what? I give myself permission to be a human being that really believes in certain things. And that, at the end of the day, is what I invite all of you to do. 100%. That is what I invite you to do. Do my days look like this every single day? No. <laughs> no, you know that. You you come and listen to this podcast. You know that I don't dwell on things like this, but these things are important. And this is not just about surface level topics and just solely being in your own personal development and, you know, worrying and growing in your own world. It's about thinking about the culture at large and the things that we want to change. And the first step about that is knowing where you stand and speaking up about it, albeit not perfect. And people might judge and criticize and not listen to your podcast anymore. And you know what? That's all right. That's really, I'm really okay with that. So anyway, that's a good spot for it. Anyway, <laughs> Let's move on and let me tell you a little bit about Samantha. Samantha Skelly is an entrepreneur, motivational speaker, best-selling author, and emotional eating expert. As founder of Hungry for Happiness, a movement to empower women to overcome their disordered eating and body image issues, Samantha has revolutionized the weight loss industry by examining the individual and underlying causes of eating disorders. So excited for you to hear this interview. And before we get started, real quick, I just wanted to remind you that I'm going on a book tour in January and February. If you haven't heard me talk about it yet on the podcast, you can go to yourkickasslife.com forward slash HTSFLS. I think you might need to scroll down a little bit because the official book page is, is up. It's not just a, um, a short little page anymore. So that will give you an opportunity to pop in your email address and I will send you stuff that only has to do with the book. So that is if I'm going to a city near you, I'm going to be running some really small, fun, exclusive workshops. And then there's going to be some bonuses and all that stuff. So if you want to make sure that you know all about that, yourkickasslife.com forward slash HTSFLS. And without further ado, here is Samantha. 
Hey, Samantha. Thanks for being here, babe. Thank you for having me. I'm super stoked. I love this topic and I love you. So today is going to be a great day. I think that this is a topic that we really can't talk enough about. I feel like probably 99% of women struggle with this. And if they don't, they have it sometime in their life. So let's jump right in because speaking about body image, let's, let's start with body image. And you have said that at one time you struggled with body image and that damn number on the scale for you determined how worthy you were on any given day. So then something changed. So can you tell us, you tell us a little bit about your story and then what did change for you and what do you tell people about body image today? Yeah. So it's super interesting. I just want to, before I tell my story, I just want to share body image. So my whole thing with body image is we're constantly told to love our bodies. And when someone spends 30 years hating their body to love your body the next day because of the body positivity movement or whatever, that's impossible. Mm -hmm. And so I just want to speak to the women who are like, how the heck do I do this? We have to start from a place of it's okay to hate my body first. It's okay to not like it. Then we can gain acceptance and traction to then learn to love our bodies. And I'm sure we'll get to that later in the interview. But as far as like my journey through that, it was super complicated. Like I'm sure most women's <laughs> their bodies and food are. It's like, what is this? Why am I in this body? And why can't I figure out how to love it? I was a dancer and an actress when I was a child actress and a dancer when I was growing up. And so the majority of my childhood was spent either on a stage in tight clothing or in front of the camera with all eyes on me. And so, I mean, body image or like how my body looks was a big focus and it it didn't manifest into disordered eating or self-confidence things or any of that until I was actually 18. So when I was younger, whether I was just suppressing it or, you know, I wasn't acknowledging it or it didn't yet, you know, manifest in behavioral change, I consumed it. But the behaviors of the kind of like self-violence started when I was 18. So... I decided I'm like, I'm just going to stop acting. I'm going to stop dancing. I'm just going to, I just want to figure out like what else there is to life besides like being in a studio for, you know, 30 hours a week. And Mm -hmm. so I was like, mom, dad, I'm not going to university. I want to create my education through traveling. And so I was like, I'm going to travel for four years and just learn about the world and learn about me. And so I packed a suitcase, 18 years old, jumped on a plane and moved to Australia. And I got to Australia and within a week of being there, I was like, who am I? What am I doing here? Like, what is my significance? You know, it was like, I'd lost my identity. I'm like, no one knows who I am. No one knows, you know, I don't know who I am. And so for me, finding that was through controlling my food. And I'm like, as long as I can keep the body that I have, then I'm fine. Then I feel like quote unquote safe. And so that was like the start of my, I call call it my diet depression days where I was on over 50 diets in less than four years. I just had no idea how to eat like a normal person, hated my body, even though I was literally the same size I am now, if not smaller. And I hated my body. You know, I thought I was, I felt like I was, you know, 300 pounds. It was crazy. My stress response is flight naturally. So like, I didn't want to look in mirrors and I didn't want to, you know, try on clothes and I didn't want to acknowledge that I even had a body. And I spent like all of my time up in my head, obsessing over food, obsessing over exercise. If I ate too many calories the day before I would like work harder at the gym the next day. It was it was exhausting. Like I spent 80% of my entire existence just like obsessing over this ridiculous food and body thing. So 
After four years of that, I was living in England and London. And at the time I was a personal trainer, which is totally messed up. Cause on one hand I'm telling people how to be happy and healthy. And then behind the scenes, I'm like, you know, a disaster with the relationship to my body and to food. And so I just felt completely out of alignment. And I'm like, people are not coming to see me because they need help with diet and exercise. They're coming to see me because they have no idea how to love themselves. And that includes me. And so I ended up getting deported from London because I overstayed my visa. So they kicked me out, which was the best thing that ever happened to me. It was horrible at the time. I moved back to Vancouver and I was like, I need to figure this thing out. Like I need to figure out these behaviors. Like I I literally can't live like this anymore. And so I spent the next three and a half years of my life just really digging into like, what's going on? Like, what am I actually hungry for? What is this deficit in my body? Why am I struggling so hard to love myself? Why can't I accept what is? And so after going to see like a lot of like mentors and coaches and counselors and energy healers, I began to realize that I just blocked myself so much from loving myself and loving my body. And I was making it extremely difficult on myself. I was looking at the world in complete black and white and there was no area for gray at all. And wait, I'm going to, I have a question. I'm going to stop you for a second because there's something really that's interesting to me in your story. And so when you, and I think a lot of people that listen to this podcast or that listen to anything really or read personal development in general, I think that most women that do have a problem with eating or food in general or their bodies, they know. But I think that there are some still that don't. They think like, no, the answer to my fears and anxiety and unhappiness is if I just was, you know, 10 pounds thinner or, you know, you fill in the blank number thinner. So my question for you is like, what was the tipping point for you or the, was it a book you read or a therapist you saw or something that happened where you realized like, oh, the, the, the solution really isn't losing weight or restricting my calories. The solution is the way that I feel about myself. Was it like a gradual process or was it like yeah. I hit over the head with a frying pan? Um, it's like, I knew it. I knew I was doing the wrong things to get happiness. You know, I was like shaming my way skinny, like shaming my, I was trying to shame my way to happiness. I like logically knew that I was doing the wrong thing. But what was the moment where I was like, I need to cut this out is Mm -hmm. when my girlfriend, she's like, can we go for a walk? And I remember it like it was yesterday. She took me for a walk and she's like, Sam, everyone knows what you're doing. Like everyone knows how much you're struggling. Like just admit it to yourself so you can start healing. And I was like, it was almost like she gave me a permission slip because for those women listening who are struggling with this, it's super shameful. We don't want to tell anyone. We don't want right. to tell our husbands and our girlfriends or our mothers. And so I logically knew I was doing the wrong thing by trying to shame my way there, but it had to take like someone who knew me and loved me to be like, Hey, cut this out. Like you're only killing yourself. So that's interesting. I had a similar situation because I very similar story. Like I, I knew for me, it was sort of, I had a kind of on again, off again relationship with my eating disorder. And during probably the worst on again part of it, I knew that the behaviors that I was engaging in were bad for me. I was very much in denial that they probably could have killed me if I kept going with them, but I didn't care. I didn't mm-hmm. care. I was mm-hmm. like, I would wrap. It felt like more pain to me to look at my actual problems in my life, like the emotional <laughs> shit that yeah. I needed to deal with. That was scarier to me than actually continuing to engage in these behaviors that I knew were not good for me. And for me, it was my mom that said something to me and it was similar. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, this isn't just affecting me anymore. This could possibly affect other people and other people are worried about me. So mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, similar. Sorry, I just was really curious about that. I think there's many layers of it for people. Like when they do finally get to that place where they're ready to do the work and just like lay down the gauntlet. Yeah. So that's why I was curious about that. Yeah. And like, to your point, the thing that stops people the most is they're terrified of feeling pain. Right. Right. right? So we live in a world where whether it's physical pain or emotional pain, we're constantly trying to get rid of it. Right. So whatever, when we were younger, our mothers would be like, just stop crying, just stop Mm -hmm. crying. Or, or like if we hurt ourselves, we'd be like, okay, oh my God, like let's fix it right now. Let's fix it. So we live in a world where we're constantly trying to fix pain immediately. And all what we have to understand is in order to integrate back into our bodies, be in our bodies and heal our relationship to them, we have to feel the pain. We have to sit in it and know it's not going to kill you. No, it's not going to, you know, take you down or you're not going to be stuck there forever. Cause that is what people think. We have to understand, like we get to be with it and observe it and we're just observing what's going on. Like pain is a divine teacher. Pain mm-hmm. is the portal to the truth, right? Yeah. It's like when we can feel pain and when we can get curious about it, we can go, Oh, okay, great. Let's figure it out. So ultimately what we need to do is we need to understand that in order for us to get through this, we absolutely need to change the relationship we have to emotional pain. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And so that's literally just a reframe of this is a gift. This is a portal to the truth. When I get to sit with this, no, it will not consume me, but I'll get to learn from it. It's not going to take me down. Oftentimes in our adult lives, the feeling of pain, like for us to feel it triggers trauma. Cause maybe when we were younger, which was like the last time that we fully felt into our bodies, something traumatic happened in our subconscious. It's like, let's shut that down. Let's not feel. And so in our adult life, we have to understand that no, we're not going to experience trauma again. If we feel we get to reframe what that means to us. Mm-hmm. I'm about halfway through the book. The body keeps the score. Have you read it? I'm sure you have. You know what? It's on my bedside table. It's so heady that I have I know. to know. So slow. <laughs> it's taken me like months to get through it because it's it's a little yeah. clinical. <laughs> yeah, yeah, me too. But me fascinating. Too. There's yeah. an abridged version. So if anybody I'll I'll put the link in the show notes to, to both versions and the reason I, it popped into my mind because it's exactly what you were saying and that research shows that that any kind of, I shouldn't say any kind, but some kinds of therapy that people go through can trigger, can re-trigger trauma and make people feel like they are back in it. So mm-hmm. yes, mm-hmm. just what is a disclaimer, go see a trained trauma specialist if you do yeah. have legitimate trauma because it's, it can be very multi-layered and, and does take professional work. For sure. Especially like breath work when we're really moving energy through the body at high levels that can re-trigger trauma, which will, which people get like, they disassociate sometimes. That's another conversation, but yeah. yes, your point. Crazy. Okay. So let's move. And I did cut you off. Was there anything else with that first question that you wanted to add? I think it was just, I mean, what I was just to finish that piece off to wrap it in a bow, like what I was trying to do with diet and exercise was I was externalizing a very internal problem. So the issue was all internal and I needed to, I needed to heal internal, you know, my internal wounds with internal solutions, not put band-aids on bullet wounds with restrictive dieting and over-exercising and obsessing. So, yeah. Yeah, man. I mean, I should have bought stock and band-aids like in the beginning (laughs) when I was trying to like slap band-aids on. Oh, so many band-aids. And Mm -hmm. I want to just say, I don't know if I've ever even said this on the podcast. I think people could probably figure it out by now because I'm really open about struggles and things that get reignited in my own life and what I'm working on. And for me, it's been, it's been really interesting because I think sort of, I made up that when I first, for me, it was really when I got sober in 2011, like that's when really my life kind of exploded in my face. And 
And I really yeah. started doing the hard, hard emotional work. And I think I thought that maybe it would take a couple of years and I'd be good. <laughs> but it's been, you know, what are we in now? You know, the end of 2017, 2018. And we, I'm still going through it and I'm still finding things and I still get triggered. You know, it's especially like if you're in a relationship, like welcome to your, okay. to your triggers, to all of them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I said to my spiritual teacher yesterday and I was like, I was like, does this ever end? Like, do I ever get there? He's like, nope. He's no, like, no. this entire human experience is a process. Mm-hmm. You know, every, you know, things are going to come up all the time. And I'm like, okay, good to know. They just look <laughs> a little different and there's different angles and, and sometimes they feel familiar and sometimes they don't. And yeah. it's all, yeah. I mean, it's never boring. That's for sure. It's never boring. And on that note, let's talk about emotional eating. (laughs) So I think, and this is really interesting to me because I'm always kind of questioning. I'm like, I don't personally, like, I don't think, I don't know if I've ever had a problem, emotional eating. I don't know. I think maybe I'm just in denial about it, but I, I think that for me, I had a similar story to you that it was just massive restricting. Like there were good foods and there were bad foods. And then when I was feeling really sad or lonely, then I would eat the bad foods. You know what I mean? I'm using air quotes over here. So I think my question for you is how can we recognize we are eating emotionally and what can we do about it? Mm, So it's the intentionality behind the consumption. So when we get home from work and we're stressed out and it's like, oh, I just need like, I just need a a relief, right? It's like there's emotion in our body that we don't want to feel into or we don't have the tools to feel into. And so we want to shut it down. We want to numb it out. And so it's like, I need a release. Like I need I need like a a breath. Right. And so what food does is it does that exact thing for a very short amount of time until we have like the onset of guilt and shame. And so, I mean, there is no good foods and bad foods, right? It's like what I get my clients to do is like, we go from a state of like having good foods and bad foods. And then we go completely to like neutrality around food. Then we can start to like respect food and use food for like pleasure in a very responsible way. So it's like, are we emotional eating? Well, like ask yourself, right before you put that food in your mouth what is the intentionality behind this is it for health hunger or pleasure because that's like the three kind of like pillars of how we should be consuming am i eating this because i'm actually like you know hungry and and it's going to nourish my body so i'll have the energy to be like my authentic self or am i doing this in a very conscious way for pleasure for like enjoyment for like enhancing moments and connecting and so when it's under those categories, that's a very healthy way of consumption. But when it's emotionally, when it's negatively emotionally driven, AKA, I want to numb the emotions, the negative emotions in my body. That's when we need to do some work. Interesting. Okay. Mm -hmm. So health, hunger, or did you say pleasure? Yeah. Pleasure. Okay. So for instance, this morning I had a healthy breakfast and I went walking because I've been like on a mission. <laughs> it's a long story. I won't bore you with the details, but I've been walking. So I went and did that. And I know because we have chocolate chip cookies right now. And I know that after lunch, I'm going to have a cup of coffee and a cookie. They're the small mini ones. And I know that's going to be not because I'm hungry, partially because it's there and because they're fucking delicious. Like, let's be honest, (laughs) but I don't feel guilty about it. I don't feel, and I really will just have one. So would, so I would, I would, I make up that that's in the category of pleasure. 
hundred percent, hundred percent. I have this thing in my life and it's called the 20% rule. And so it's like, how can I make this experience right now? 20% better. So where I'm at right now, I'm sitting at my desk, I'm talking to you, like what would make this better? Maybe if I like lit a candle or like put my blanket on or put a diffuser on or whatever, it's like that would enhance this experience 20%. And so food can often go into that category. So like you sitting there having your cup of coffee after lunch, that would be great. And if you have a cookie that would enhance that experience 20%, because you're not saying to yourself, Oh my gosh, I'm so stressed out. I'm so agitated. I need to numb this experience. You're saying, how can I enhance this experience? And we can do that beautifully through food. Right. And so absolutely that would fall into the category of enjoyment, pleasure, that 20% rule. Oftentimes though, like when it's for emotional reasons, we don't stop at one, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, let me get all of the cookies in my body at once. (laughs) That's interesting. I think I may have kind of dodged that bullet. I had Isabel Fox and Duke on here several weeks ago and we were talking about this and I was talking about how my mom is a total normal eater. And, and I mean, really normal. Like she, like if there's a piece of cake and she's had like her entire dinner and she will have like one or two bites of it and she's like, I'm full, you know, and and she like won't finish it and she's not restricting. She just literally is full and just, (laughs) but I, for me, it's, you know, I did not escape the bullet of all the other addictions. And I think that that food just for me is I feel really sick if I eat more than what I, it just becomes not pleasurable for me at all. And it doesn't numb the feelings. It doesn't work. I'm sure I've tried it, (laughs) but for me, it's like love and sex and relationships and booze. Forget it. (laughs) I'll take that. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's why I like having guests and experts like you on the show to talk about it because my experience is, is limited there. So my next question, really dovetailing off the last one is, you know, you're talking about the emotions that are, you know, underneath the numbing out through food and, and probably diet and exercise for many people. So how can we start to address and uncover those underlying issues that cause the emotional eating? Yeah, this is about inquiry. So oftentimes we have no idea what's going on and what's driving these behaviors because we simply just don't want to look at it. It's easier to be in denial, right? It's easier to be in denial. It's easier to put positivity over pain, which is, I get a lot of flack for this. I get a lot of hate for this, but it's something that I stand behind 100%. We can't put positivity over pain, which is why I feel the body positivity movement to some, to some extent is flawed. And I don't say that in a way of like, It shouldn't exist because I very much think it should. I think the intentionality behind the movement is amazing. Spreading love and light, like shifting the societal structure from like, we need to be skinny and fit in this box into like, let's embrace diversity. I love that. And what tends to happen and what I see in the hungry for happiness community all the time is women follow that and they they just get in denial of what is right. And so when we can be so honest with ourselves and so real, that's what creates traction, right? That's what creates like the ability to actually transform at the deepest level, not just like mask it with being happy or whatever, right? What we have to understand is like, it's okay to not be okay. Mm-hmm. It's okay to not hate your body. It's okay to hate your body. It's okay to be depressed about it. It's okay to use food as a drug, but like, let's call a spade a spade and like really get real with where we're at. And that truly is the first part of any transformation when it comes to emotional eating, binge eating, body image issues, any of that kind of stuff. It's like, okay, cool. Where are we at right now? What's the current situation, right? It's like, think about it as like your finances. How can you grow your financial wealth or the health of your wealth without knowing how much you've got already and mm-hmm. where your money 
going. Right. And so it's really about like, cool, let me sit down and like, let me not associate my self-worth with where I'm at, but let me just have a clear idea of where I'm at. And, And when we get to that place, then we can go, okay, well, I understand that I'm using every piece of food that goes in my mouth as a drug. Okay, well, cool. Let's start there. And, and so it's truly just about like understanding that we can look at this stuff without it taking us over. You know, we can look at this, like we have to look at this stuff. We get to look at this stuff for us to actually transform. We're interrupting this podcast episode to tell you a little bit about one of our sponsors, RX Bar. They sent me a variety pack of their bars. They were sitting on the counter and my husband and my son got into them first before I even had a chance to. When I did, definitely my favorite is the chocolate coconut. I was pleasantly surprised how they tasted because you look at the ingredients. It is simply eggs, almonds, cashews, and coconut. And I was like, oh, okay, we'll see. But it was absolutely, definitely my favorite. My husband and son liked the peanut butter chocolate the best. Turns out real food ingredients actually taste really good. Whether you like sweet or savory, chocolate or fruit flavors, there's an RX bar for you. They come in 11 delicious flavor varieties. They are gluten-free, soy-free, dairy-free, no added sugar, no artificial colors, artificial flavors, preservatives, or fillers, which is great for us because my son is gluten intolerant, so I was very happy to see that they were gluten-free. For 25% off your first order, visit rxbar.com forward slash Y-K-A-L and enter the promo code Y-K-A-L at checkout. Interesting. Okay. So when you, you talked about, you said that a lot of times people are in denial, like what is common that some people are in denial about who are nervous about starting this work? Yeah. It's the fact that they are super uncomfortable in their bodies. They hate their bodies. And they don't know how to admit that, you know, they don't know how to just be okay with that. And so that's what it is really. It's like, it's either like, I'm going to get overly positive about it, or I'm just going to ignore it altogether and pretend I don't even have a body. Right. Mm -hmm. And so there's this beautiful space in the middle where we don't have to listen to anyone but ourselves, you know, because on one hand we have the weight loss industry telling us that we need to lose weight. And on the other hand, we have body positivity, things like that, telling us that we're fine the way that we are, which to some extent is very true. We're left in the middle, a little bit untethered, like, well, what do I do? And, and it, it really all comes down to personal responsibility and personal choice. What do you want to do? Like, how do you want to walk? Cause I don't give a shit like either way. It literally like whatever you want to do is, is the right choice. So if you want to walk the planet on a lighter frame, let's celebrate that. And let's do that responsibly from a place of love. If you want to be 20 pounds overweight and that feels comfortable and then you, you feel good doing that, then do that and celebrate that or whatever that is, 50 pounds overweight or whatever that is. It's like, let's not shame ourselves, but let's get real about what we want. And it's incredible. And I'm not sure if like you've experienced this with your work, but When I ask my women, like, hey, what is it that you want? I get deer in the headlights constantly. Like, we don't know because we're constantly putting our happiness in, like, well, what should I want? Mm -hmm. You know, you tell me how to be happy. And this whole food and body conversation is like, it's very obvious that we've not yet decided for ourselves and we're relying on other people to tell us what we want. Got it. Okay. That's interesting. And so let's kind of shift gears but it's a very close gear about and talk about the topic of shame, you know, shame around food choices, shame around our bodies. And 
you know, this is one of my favorite topics. So what do you say we can do or what do you do with your clients to, to deal with shame? Mm, Yeah, great question. And so oftentimes when women come into our community, the only thing that they think is the problem is the food, right? I've got a food issue. You need to help me with my food issue. And as we peel back the layers, often I would say at this point, we're about probably 60% of the women who come in to the doors. They don't realize this at the start. They've had some sort of sexual trauma or something. And the severity completely ranges, but something happened to tell them, I don't feel safe in my body. I need to disconnect from my body. I need to create a physical barrier to intimacy. Therefore they've used food to do that. And the beautiful thing is they don't know they're doing that yet. Mm -hmm. And when we educate them and we go, let's love the part of us that feels unsafe. Let's love part of us that feels shameful and afraid. Let's love that seven-year-old who like does not know what the F is going on right now. Let's be with that part of us. And let's, let's reintegrate our wounded child with our evolved woman. And let's do that together. And that's a beautiful shift. And I think shame is like, as you know, and your listeners know, you talk about this a lot. It's like, it's heavy. It's heavy until it's spoken about. And so when we can get in community of other women who are like, Oh, you've gone through this too. Oh, we've, we've, a lot of us has got 60% of us has gone through this. Oh my goodness. Wow. Like even just like the acknowledgement of it and getting in community with women who go through it and admitting it out loud, that in itself is healing. And then we can take responsibility for, okay, where are we at with this now? And how is this serving me? And what is this costing me? And when we can really like open up those conversations with a lot of love and understanding and compassion for this part of us that like feels so shameful, that's where the rubber meets the road. Like that's where the true healing starts. Okay. Yes. To all of that. And I love that you, you know, your percentage about 60% of the women that that come in have some kind of, you know, sexual or probably some kind of physical trauma. Something happened to their bodies. And I was, I was thinking about that when you were saying that, and I would be part of the 40% that didn't have anything happen until I was older. But what's interesting, and I think some people might be able to relate to this is, and I also, and I know for a lot of women too, probably in your community that they, what was modeled for them from their mothers or the the females in their life was their own issues with food or their bodies. Or, you know, when, when you see that when you're a little girl, you know, that's what, you know, and, and what you grow up seeing. So I didn't have that. Like, you know, I, like I mentioned, my mom was a normal eater. We didn't have a scale. She didn't talk badly about her body. She didn't talk badly about other women's bodies. It just was a non topic, which I think that in and of itself can kind of cause a problem because I was left to my own devices to figure it out. And guess who taught me, you know, I grew up in the era of MTV. So (laughs) the media taught me. And so I was a, I was like a poster child of really just a product for media debauchery and Mm -hmm. quickly realized that women are ornaments, you know, to be enjoyed. And what's interesting is that So for instance, I'll give you an example. When I was, gosh, I was probably already like 19. This was, you know, past my, later in my teenage years, there was a guy that I liked and we were at a pool, like a community pool. And it was that moment, you know, and I think still for many women, like the moment of like being in your bathing suit and then like taking your clothes off at the pool or the beach Mm -hmm. can just elicit so much dread. And I remember he was already in the pool with his buddy and I was there with one of my girlfriends. 
I'm like, oh my God, okay. <laughs> so I take my bathing suit off and I'm in a two piece and I turn around to face the pool and he's like staring at me and giving me like the up and down with his eyes. And I remember feeling so like, I can't even put into words just shame and embarrassment and just gross, just really, really gross. And I don't remember the exact comments that he made, but it was like comments of approval, but like they were very delayed and it was just, the whole thing was just so disgusting. A few months after that, that guy went on to date rape me, which Mm -hmm. is a whole nother story. I think I've told the story here on the podcast, but it's another story for another time to which I totally for 20 years chalked up to as being my fault. So when I went to do Brene's certification in 2014, that story actually came tumbling out as like a huge source of shame Mm. and trauma for that happening. And so it's interesting that these things can happen to us that maybe even decades later, we don't realize have impacted our own body image. And like I was mentioning, like, I don't necessarily think food has been an issue for me, but body image has been a huge issue for me. Mm. And It's interesting. I think everyone's story is the details are going to look different, but I Mm -hmm. think at the end of the day, the underlying feeling and emotion around it is feeling unsafe, like you said, and feeling, I think for many women is feeling like you're on display and you're doing it wrong or that your body is wrong Mm -hmm. and just, and feeling ashamed about it, but not for, I think for a lot of us, it's like not being able to really put your finger on what you're exactly ashamed about. It's Mm -hmm. just for existing. Yeah. Yeah. That's so true. That's so true. I think like, and this is where the self-inquiry piece comes in, right? It's like, if I can take time and really get clear on like, what do I feel shameful about now? Cause to your point, right? Someone could say something to us when on the playground, when we were six years old mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. that one comment can grow and grow and anchor in our blueprint and grow and grow and go to the point where we're like, Oh, I've created such a case for the fact that I should feel shameful, but there's no reason now to feel that. Yeah. And so, yeah, that self-inquiry piece of just like taking responsibility, moving from identification of I am this to, oh, this is something that exists in me and I have the power to shift when we can be in that place and go like, oh, is there a reasonable, you know, is, is there a legit reason why I feel this right now? Mm-hmm. If we don't do the inquiry on it. It just exists in our body, like unmonitored. Right. And I think that too, that, you know, that, that happened to me when I was 19. So that was 1994. That was so long ago, but it's still like, as I was telling that story, say I'm seriously, like my, I just realized my hands are like clenched and my palms are sweating. So for me, those kind of inquiries, I also have my clients and myself do like a body check. Like is is something physiologically happening to you? Mm-hmm. And if so, then, I mean, if we're going to talk about brain science, like those neural pathways have been created and that is, you know, trauma being reignited. And I think mm-hmm. I wanted to tell that story because I think what happens for many of us is we, we have stories like that and we kind of poo poo them, you know, and I'm like, yes. I was 19 years old. It was just some dumb boy yes. who was a dick, you know, and he was a total douche. Like he, oh, he, he really was. And it shouldn't be that big of a deal. Like it really like, mm-hmm. oh, Andrea, like just get over it. You know, and like we do that to ourselves. And I think that it doesn't work. Like, <laughs> obviously. No, 
Yeah, absolutely. Like, yeah, it's like, oh, that was so long ago or that doesn't matter. Don't give him so much power. Yeah. So much power. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And it's like, we're really robbing ourselves of an opportunity to truly heal that part of us. If we even think back to it and it ignites any sort of emotional response, there's work to do there. There's work to do there. I would add to that any kind of physical response too, because in the shame work that I'm trained in, like we spend a decent amount of time time learning, like, because it's unique for every person. It's, it's similar for most people. Most people feel shame in their bellies or their chest and feel some people have like tingling in their armpits. And it's important to know those physiological responses so that you know when it's happening, because when you don't know that it's happening, you just kind of like take it for granted, like a fish being in water, like doesn't know that they're actually in water. You just keep going and keep going and keep going. And then wonder why you feel like fucking shit all the time and wonder why you're engaging in all these behaviors like perfectionism and people pleasing and self-sabotage and isolating. And that's the bulk of the work that I do is figuring out like what your triggers are. So, you know, quickly when you're in them, not so you don't ever have them anymore, like you're still going to have them, but knowing quickly when you're in them so you can use the tools that you have to move through it, not around it. Not- yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I have one more question for you that does sort of correspond to what we're talking about right now. And, and that's the whole concept of being in your body. And I know you use that term a lot, which I'm sure it's a big part of your work, having been a dancer and, and things like that. So what does that mean? First of all, because I think a lot of women have a hard time sort of wrapping their head around what that is. And what are some things that we can practice to be in our bodies or be in tune with our bodies? Mm -hmm, Absolutely. So, so the majority of the women that I work with are, you know, kind of like high achieving perfectionists. We're completely none of those types of women that listen to this podcast. So, (laughs) (laughs) you guys like, I don't know what that means. What? Mm -hmm. What? Not me. Yeah. And so we love to be disconnected, head and heart, mind and body. You know, it's easier in the head. It's easier in the mind because I can overthink. You know, it's like that was me for sure. Oh yeah. Let me think my way through this. I'm smart enough. Gosh, it was just like I'm like I'm so smart. Let me. Yeah. And and this is the thing I learned very quickly. Like we need to feel in order to heal. We need to feel in order to heal, especially, you know, we need to be in our bodies and be with that pain. Like we talked about earlier in the show. And so, so really it's about like the reintegration between our minds, our logical, beautiful minds and our like very wise bodies. And a lot of people are going, okay, cool, Sam, but like, how do I do that? And so I use this process called tracking, which is literally just like being still shutting down the world, getting rid of all of your distractions and just, just noting the sensations in your body, noting the sensations in your body. So you can go like, like right now I'll do it right now. It's like, okay, I feel, I feel a little bit of like a contraction in my solar plex. I feel a little doubt in that area. There's a slight contraction of my chest. It feels a little bit like fear and just like being the observer, right? We talked about like observing versus identifying. Mm-hmm. When, so people who deal with anxiety tend to identify a lot. Like I am anxious. What if we switch that to, I am experiencing anxiety or I am experiencing the sensation of anxiety mm-hmm. because we can observe it. We can't be something that we're observing right? So it's not you, it's not your true self. It's just a sensation that we're experiencing. And so that is how we, that is like step one of like shutting down the world, getting present and just tracking the body, like what's really going on. And I encourage everyone listening, even if you're doing this while I'm talking, 
your mind is going to want to make meaning around every single sensation, right? right? I call that sensation association. And so the body gives us a sensation and the mind's like, let me put that in a box. Mm-hmm. Let me put that put a label on it. Yeah. Let me label that. And that's beautiful because our minds are so intelligent and wonderful and trying to constantly figure things out for us. But when we're really looking to refeel and get back in our body, that's not useful because it literally doesn't matter why that sensation is there. It could be your sensation. It could be something that you took on from someone else, especially those women who are listening, who are empaths and, and soak in energy of other people. And so just being the observer and tracking the emotionality that's happening in the body is that is a beautiful first step to, to doing that. If you try that later after you listen to the show and you're like, okay, I can't quite get there, use movement and breath first before we do this. And so that can even be just like putting on, you know, your favorite song and just literally moving your body in any way, just like getting the energy flowing and moving through your body, just to like activate the system and then try it or try some like deep breathing for three or four minutes before we do that. I, breath and movement are two beautiful ways that we can get into the body because it, it eliminates the need for the logical mind. And the mind gets in the way of the ability to truly feel and heal. But when we can get the emotional body working with the mind, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful match. But right now, the majority of people, you know, that's not integrated yet. And that's okay. That's absolutely okay. Just acknowledging when the mind wants to come in and make meaning around it and go, okay, I hear you. And I'm good. I don't need you right now and not fighting it because what we resist will persist, what we fight will strengthen. And so being in our body and just like tracking the sensations, breathing into it. And if, if you need to re- repeat a mantra, like I am safe, I am home, something to that effect, just to, just to like, let your mind know, like everything I'm doing right now is totally safe. I'm safe to feel. That's a beautiful first step to like the reintegration of feeling. I love that. I actually didn't realize that I was even doing that. I do that when I have anxiety. So I was diagnosed with severe anxiety disorder in 2003 and have been successfully off medication for about a decade now. And it's been interesting. (laughs) I had a hard time when I was pregnant, but yeah, that's what I do is like, I notice that it's happening because before I would just it would just breed panic for me. And then I would just let it like take me away. And, and I know, you know, people with clinical anxiety, it's, it's complicated. It can be complicated for many people. And I'm not saying like, do this and you'll be healed. This is just what worked for me. Mm -hmm. Many, many years of, of struggling and, but it is a little bit like cognitive behavioral therapy. It's Mm -hmm. noticing that you're in it and just breathing through it. And I use mantras. They're really helpful for me, but I think what you're kind of pointing to is, is a term that was used in psychology called over-identification. And that's the concept of overthinking everything that's going on with you and just, and like, am I doing this? Is this good? Is this bad? Is this right? What do I call this? I need a name for this thing that's happening. And, and I, I know I'm with you like overachiever. Like I want to do it. I want to do it right. I want to do personal development beautifully. And it's not always (laughs) like that. Gosh, I know. I know. It's like, it's so funny being a recovering perfectionist myself. It's like, I noticed that tendency coming in that thread of like, I'm going to do this. It's got to be perfect, you know, and it's still there. It's like my mask of perfectionism is super sneaky. She like sneaks up in times where I'm like, are you serious? You're still here. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Okay, come on, come on in. I'll welcome you in, but I'm not going to like give into your neediness, you know? (laughs) Yeah, mine, I definitely have, I've come a long way with my house and like being clean when people come over. So 
I know before I used to be just like, oh my God, you know, even the guy that's like going to fix the heater, you know, I would like clean up and, and now I just, I don't even, I don't even say excuse the mess. Like sometimes I do, sometimes I say like, excuse the mess, but we live here. And yeah. most of the time, one. I don't even say that. I'm like, I don't, yeah. you know, it's not that bad. It's really not. It's not like there's like piles of dog shit all over the house, which, you know, like there's just not uh, two yeah. kids and a dog. It's not going to be perfect. Yeah. It's so, it's so interesting. I, it's like, I always say polishing a turd. Why do we feel the need to polish turds constantly? Right. When everybody Why has we, turds. Yeah. Let's be okay. Let's be okay with the messy. Right. It was, it was funny. I'll tell a quick story. I was at the car wash and I was like in line for the car wash the other day and I live in California. So like there's so much dust and I've got a white SUV. So it gets dusty within like five minutes. And then I go to the beach every morning. So I'm always like tracking sand in my car. And I was like, he's like, do you want a car wash? I'm like, yeah. He's like interior or exterior. I was like, oh, just the exterior is fine. Even though the interior totally needed it. It was like, that was a moment where I was like, why am I doing this? Like I'm getting a car wash to prove to everyone that I've got a shiny car, even though it's like a filthy disaster inside the car. Like what, what the fuck? It's a great metaphor. <laughs> it's like, come on, Sam, like just, just, just be okay with the mess or do it for you. You know? Yeah. So. yeah perfect. Well, yeah. anyone who's, I'm, I'm sure so curious to know more about you and your work, all the links are in the show notes. You guys know that by now, if you're regular listeners and we will throw in links to those books that we talked about as well. And I encourage everybody to go over to Samantha's site and get to know her more and the, the things that she offers. Thank you so much for being here. It's been such a great conversation. Oh, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you as always listeners for listening and being here with me in this little portion of the internet every week. And until next time, I will see you out in cyberspace. Bye-bye. Hey, ass kickers, you know, it would help me out so much if you left a rating and review for this podcast. Your Kick-Ass Life podcast will always be free to you and to help me get more awesome guests and to spread the word, it helps tremendously if you leave a rating and a review. Now, they don't particularly make this super easy to do, so I'll help you out a little. If you're in iTunes and you're on your phone, when you are in the podcast app, you need to search for Your Kick-Ass Life podcast. I know, even if you're subscribed, this is how you do it. So when you search for it and you see it come up, click on the cover art, then towards the top where it says reviews, click that, scroll down a tiny little bit, and then click write a review. Stitcher is a bit easier if you're on Android. The easiest way I found to do this is to type into Google stitcher.com your kick-ass life and voila, my podcast should pop up as the first link. Scroll down and click write a review. That's it. Thank you so very much. You have no idea how much it helps me when you do that. All right. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye.